Hello again, friends, and welcome back to the podcast. This is Season 3, Episode 8 of the Unknown Friends Book Review Podcast, and I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wham Productions. Thank you so much for tuning in for today's episode. Now, quick note, we are, of course, discussing trilogies this year, and this week we're talking about the second book in Pearl S. Buck's House of Earth trilogy. So if you have not listened to my previous episode on book one, The Good Earth, I definitely recommend you go back and listen to that before continuing with today's episode. Last time, I shared Pearl Buck's biography and introduced the House of Earth trilogy, talking especially about how it contributed to the representation of Chinese culture in English literature. So be sure to listen to that episode, episode 7, first, if you have not already. Today, we are moving forward and discussing Sons, which is the second book in the House of Earth trilogy, and we will be talking about it in comparison and contrast with book one, The Good Earth. So in The Good Earth, we met the farmer, Wang Lung, and his family, his old father, his wife, Olan, and eventually their children. Wang Lung and Olan have three sons and two daughters together, and the Good Earth follows the family's struggles against poverty and famine and their eventual rise to good fortune. After several very hard years, Wang Lung finally makes progress saving money and buying land to expand his farm, and as his lands grow, he becomes really a very wealthy man by the time he's middle-aged. But like I mentioned, wealth brings its own problems. And one of the things we'll be discussing today is the problem of luxury, the problem of idleness and restlessness, and uh, a related topic, the difficulty of passing down values between generations in any context, but especially in the context of luxury. So there will be some spoilers today, as is often the case this season as we're discussing trilogies, it's nearly impossible to talk about the second and third books in a series without spoiling some of the plot twists that happen earlier in the trilogy. I'm afraid that just comes with the territory. So, book two, Sons. Obviously, this is about the next generation in Wang Lung's family. The book begins with Wang Lung on his deathbed, and after his passing, the story follows the paths of each of his three sons, though it focuses particularly on the youngest son. Now, one peculiarity of this trilogy, especially in book two, is that Pearlbuck uses very few names to refer to her characters. Wang Lung's three sons do not get personal names. They're simply called Wang the first or the eldest, Wang the second, and Wang the third. So bear with me as I do the same in talking about the characters. Uh, the one other way the narrator identifies the three sons is by their occupations or titles. 
So the first son is sometimes called Wong the Landlord, the second is often called Wong the Merchant, and the third becomes known as Wong the Warlord, or alternatively Wong the Tiger. All right? So Wang Lung dies at the start of book two, and his three sons inherit his wealth and his vast farmlands. And Wang Lung's dying wish is that his sons must never sell the land. He made his fortune by farming, and he has always loved the land, the good earth, right? And he believes that there is security in land more than in cash. And his sons promise that they will not sell the land, but there was this ominous moment at the very end of book one when Wang the first and Wang the second look at each other and, and smile knowingly without their father realizing it. And as readers, we can tell already at that moment that they will not keep their promise. None of Wang Lung's three sons value the land for itself. The eldest son really only values money, or more specifically, the life of ease and pleasure that money can buy. So Wang the eldest is a spendthrift and a glutton and a libertine. Uh, I mean, within certain bounds. He also values his status and his respectability, so he doesn't do anything that is culturally unacceptable. But it's really incredible how much immorality is culturally acceptable in this society. So Wong the Eldest, Wong the Landlord, envisions for himself, after his father's death, a life of luxury, a life of peace and pleasure. Wang II is a little different. He too loves money, but much more for its own sake than his older brother does. Wang II is a cunning tradesman and moneylender, and his idea of a good life is more economical than his brother's, in that he does not spend recklessly on fine foods and fine clothes and the things his brother enjoys. Instead, Wang the merchant is very practical, essentially a miser. His ambition is to accumulate more and more riches and to make his wealth more and more secure. Wang the third is a different creature altogether. Back in book one, Wang Lung had hoped that his third son would be a farmer like he himself had been. A rich farmer, but still someone who would carry on Wang Lung's own legacy, his love of the earth. Someone who would tend the fields that he had painstakingly purchased and developed over the years. But this third son has very different ideas for his own life. And many things make the son rebel against his father. And in the end, Wang III runs away from home to become a soldier, much to Wang Lung's disappointment. And in Book 2, we get to see how life plays out for Wang III. He wants to be a warlord, and that is exactly what he becomes. He wants to build an army for himself and win and rule territory. 
He does not necessarily have political ambitions in the sense of um, like becoming emperor or something, but he does want power and respect. And so that's what he sets out to achieve. And much of this second book in the trilogy really focuses on him and his journey becoming a warlord. He becomes known as Wong the Tiger, and to an extent, he does accomplish all his goals. He defeats regional bands of robbers and earns the locals' respect for it, and over time he establishes himself as an authority in his region. So, three sons, all with quite distinct motivations and methods. And also, they each have very different families of their own. Wang the eldest marries a refined and conceited young woman, and eventually marries another younger woman, as he gets tired of the first one. Uh, Polygamy is absolutely normal and acceptable for a rich man in this time and place. Um, Wang the second, in contrast, only marries once, and he marries very practically. His wife is a no-nonsense, useful, unrefined woman, and that is what he wants. She bears him children, and she is thrifty, and supports him in his miserliness. Now, Wang the third, unlike his brothers, is a man of strong feelings. Not uh, not sentimental, but he is strong-willed and fiercely self-motivated. And for a long time, he hardly even thinks about marriage because it would not serve his purpose. He is laser-focused on becoming a great general, and a wife and children would just get in the way so he doesn't bother. But once he becomes established, once he essentially achieves his life goal, then he starts to wonder what will happen after he dies. He begins to wish that he had a son to carry on his legacy. So he opens up to the idea of finding himself a wife. Now, Wang the Tiger's marriage, or rather marriages, get complicated, and I won't go into all that. I will just let you discover those plot twists for yourself. But in the end, his only reason for marrying is so that he can have a son. And he does eventually have one son. And we actually get a personal name for this son, unlike so many of the other characters. His son's name is Wong Yuan. And Wong the Tiger is bound and determined to make his son into a great warrior, to carry on his legacy in the years to come. And for a while, Wang Yuan complies with his father's wishes to an extent. He trains throughout his boyhood in the art of war. But whether becoming a warlord is really his personal ambition is doubtful. And eventually the different goals of father and son will clash. And like Wang Lung was with his sons, Wang the Tiger, too, will be disappointed by the path taken by his son, Wang Yuan. 
So if the title of book two did not already give it away, there really is a strong underlying theme of fatherhood and sonship in this trilogy. Issues of tradition and modernity and the conflict between the two, as well as the issue of the harmful cycles that tend to plague generations, and also the difficulty of transferring values between generations. These are all central questions in the House of Earth books. It's fascinating to compare books one and two. Book three as well, of course, but it's a little different, and we're saving that for next week. But books one and two, in many ways, tell parallel stories of Wang Lung and his son, Wang the Tiger. Yes, in many ways, they are starkly different men. One a farmer, one a warlord, one more of a family man, one a loner, one simple, timid, and steady, and the other crafty, fearless, and rash. And yet, despite all these differences, in some essential ways, the son's life ends up being an echo of his father's. Both men have an image in their mind of what success looks like, whether that means being in possession of acres and acres of farmland or being a respected and powerful warlord. And both men, through adversity, achieve their notion of success. The tragedy is when both men try to convey their notion of success to their sons and utterly fail to do so. These first two books in the trilogy really end with parallel scenes. So book one concludes with Wang Lung desperately extracting the false promise from his sons that they will never sell the family's land. And then book two similarly ends with a confrontation between Wang the tiger and his son, Wang Yuan, which ends in a false peace, like book one ended with false peace. Wang the tiger is close to despair at the distance he recognizes between himself and his son, and he's about to weep with sorrow. But at the last moment, his servant brings him a bowl of wine, and instead of giving in and weeping, he drinks up the wine and demands more. And that's how book two ends. Drowning the awareness of his own failure in drink. That's tragic. So the question is, how did these men both fail to transfer their values to their sons? Did Wang the tiger repeat the exact same mistakes of his father, Wang Lung? Well, yes and no, I think. They did make some of the same mistakes, but in different ways. Both Wang Lung in book one and Wang the tiger in book two lost their son's respect, but for various reasons. So Wang Lung 
lost his son the tiger's respect, largely thanks to his interaction with women. He made some very bad choices along that line. Uh, Wang Lung did not treat his wife, Olan, the mother of his sons, as he should have. Once he was wealthy, Wang Lung began frequenting a brothel and eventually took one of the young women there as a second wife. And then late in life, he took a concubine from among the servants in his own house. And while these actions were culturally acceptable, they still made Wang Lung's youngest son, the tiger, very angry. And it destroys his respect for his father. Now, it's something else entirely, however, that causes the tiger to lose his son's respect years later. Instead of having a weakness for women, the tiger directs all of his attention and energies into his son. So much so that it becomes this obsessive love, this overprotective thing, a dependency of sorts. And as the son, Wang Yuan, becomes a man, he begins to see his father as almost childish. He's so absorbed in his son and his legacy. And it's that childish obsessiveness that causes Wang Yuan to lose respect for his father, the tiger. Now, I think one other big reason why both Wang Lung and Wang the Tiger fail to instill their values in their sons is because they both fail to acknowledge their son's individuality. And this is, unfortunately, a common mistake that real parents make, I think. It's all too easy to have plans and dreams for one's children. And in fact, parents often start living through their children, forcing all their own ambitions onto their sons and daughters instead of allowing the next generation some freedom of choice. It's really ironic that the attempt to force one's values on one's children often backfires and makes children want the opposite of what their parents want for them. And that's exactly what happens in the House of Earth trilogy. It's tricky, because I do believe parents should try to instill their fundamental values in their children, but that can't be forced. And what's more, instilling worldview is very different from imposing hopes, and dreams. What I mean is, I I think it is parents' responsibility to teach their children how to think about themselves and the world around them, but it is not a parent's place to shape their son or daughter's path in life. I I think the child has to seek that out for himself, perhaps with parental help, But if the parent tries to take over, that is a great way to create conflict and push the child away. So my point is we see this playing out in the House of Earth books. 
If only Wang Lung had treated his sons as individuals, with their own unique wishes and, and motivations, he might have done a better job actually transferring to them his love of the land. Even if they still hadn't wanted to become farmers, they might have been more open to his values and respectful of them, if he had not demanded they become what he wanted them to become. And then in the next generation, we unfortunately see a repeat of this same failure. Wang the Tiger never considers that his son, Wang Yuan, might want to be anything other than a warlord. There's no acknowledgement of his son's personhood, really. And this, of course, angers Wang Yuan and eventually causes him to rebel against his father. So it's a pattern. It's a tragic pattern we see in books one and two of fathers who fail to convey their values to their sons because, number one, their own moral weaknesses cost them their son's respect, and number two, they never seem able to recognize and appreciate their sons as individuals. So it's it's an interesting study, this trilogy. It is sad, but it is also interesting, and it's informative. You can sometimes learn almost as much from examples of what not to do as you can from examples of what to do. I think what's trickiest about reading this trilogy is trying to come away with some truth that you can latch onto in a tangible way and act on. That has been harder for me to find in the House of Earth trilogy than it sometimes is in other stories. There is truth here, um, realities like the reality of failed parenting, but I am admittedly struggling to find a positive takeaway from these books, largely because of the murkiness of the author's own worldview. So hopefully we'll be able to talk about this more next week when we discuss the third book of the series, A House Divided. But I do just want to make one thing clear now. Pearl S. Buck, at this point in her life, was not really writing from a Christian perspective. Yes, she was the daughter of Presbyterian missionaries. Yes, she married a missionary. But remember that in the same year that she published the last book in the House of Earth trilogy, she divorced her husband. And as her life went on, she more and more openly criticized the Christian faith and Christian people, and ultimately became, for all intents and purposes, an atheist. She stated one time, I feel no need for any other faith than my faith in human beings. Unfortunately, humanity is a fragile foundation for any belief system. And we can see evidence of that even in her own books. If these are the kinds of people she puts her faith in, then I genuinely feel sorry for her. Sure, her characters have 
their moments of nobility and even wisdom sometimes, but their lives are ultimately catastrophic and desolate. The narrator's worldview in the House of Earth is difficult to assess. So Pearl Buck was trying to tell this family's story from a perspective that was as realistically and immersively Chinese as possible. So Christianity hardly enters the story at all. A little more in book three than the first two books, but uh, but that's next episode's topic. The culture of the first two books, for sure, is traditionally Chinese, with Buddhism being the predominant religion, although many people don't seem to take even that too seriously. The main characters in the trilogy really base their moral judgments on the traditions and conventions of the society around them. They evaluate themselves in comparison with the people around them. So Wang Lung, for instance, when he takes a second wife or a concubine, doesn't really consider whether it's right or wrong in some ultimate or absolute sense, but he simply ponders whether it's culturally acceptable for a man in his position. Similarly, his son, Wang the Tiger, ranks himself morally in comparison to the men around him. He must be a good man because he is more merciful than, you know, this other guy or braver than than that guy over there. So there's really no moral compass, no fixed, certain way to judge what is right or wrong. You can only determine whether what you're doing is okay based on what most other people are doing. But as I said, humanity is a fragile foundation for any belief system. That's why these characters' lives are so disastrous. Their sense of morality is chaotic. Right and wrong are moving targets. No wonder their lives are stories of failure. So, as you can tell, it is a bit of a struggle reading this trilogy and trying to sift the truth out of it. But it is a worthwhile struggle. Uh, I believe in engaging with literature, contending with it, and giving it a chance to teach me something, whatever the worldview of the author might be. So I look forward to spending one more episode on Pearl S. Buck's work before we move on to a new trilogy. So come back two weeks from today for our last episode on the House of Earth trilogy. We will be concentrating mainly on book three, A House Divided, as we wrap up our discussion of this series. In the meantime, patrons, remember that your monthly bonus book review is scheduled for next week, April 20th. I am really enjoying the variety of literature we're getting to cover over there in the special Patreon-exclusive episodes. We've already had a memoir, a philosophical thriller, and a children's fantasy novel, and next week we'll have something else entirely, uh, a book that is hard to categorize. The book's title is Piranesi, 
written by contemporary author Susanna Clarke. I think this is going to be a really interesting discussion, and I am excited for it. So patrons, be on the lookout for that bonus book review coming on Wednesday the 20th. As always, I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and to learn more about me and my work as a Christian playwright, you can always visit my website, kittywayneproductions.com. I hope you have a great week, and thank you so much for listening. Thank you.